this is my opportunity for me to work on and and be seen in the way that reflects who I really am. And I felt like I was putting on a mask as a DJ. That wasn't really me. So I was kind of faking it. And I think faking it becomes really exhausting. And so now I can turn up to a gig and I don't feel that way because that other side of myself is being nourished. Hey guys, welcome to Active Ingredient, the podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and I'll be taking a deep dive into why people do what they do and what it is that drives them. I believe every single person has an active ingredient to them, aka a purpose, and all we have to do is uncover what that is and activate it. I'm looking at people across the board with fancy titles like editors and chiefs, founders and CEOs, to under-the-radar activists who are changing the world one person at a time. I want to get to the bottom of how they first discovered their passion, how they channel their talent consistently, and ultimately how their active ingredient is making the world a better place. Today's episode is with DJ and medical cannabis activist Chelsea Leyland. Chelsea rose to it girl status by DJing some of the most covetable fashion and art events and has traveled the world playing for Chanel, Vogue, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and many other impressive events. But at some point along the way, she felt as though she was quote-unquote living the dream but felt entirely unfulfilled. Something most people didn't know during her rise to fame was that not only was she coping with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, which she's been battling since her early teenage years, but she's also been coping with her older sister Tamsin's very severe epileptic journey as well. For the last two years, she's been treating her epilepsy with CBD after weaning herself off of all pharmaceutical drugs. And through this experience, she's become a leading advocate for destigmatizing both epilepsy and medical cannabis, fighting on behalf of her sister and patients everywhere for fair access to safe cannabis medicine. On today's episode, we talk about having to really dig deep to the root of why it is we do certain things. We talk about how during her DJ years, she felt as though she was wearing a mask and wasn't fully aligned with her purpose. We get into her introduction to cannabis, how she went from hiding her condition to now co-producing and featuring in the documentary Separating the Strains, which explores the medicinal cannabis industry and the world of epilepsy and other neurodegenerative diseases. And ultimately, we get into how she defines success these days. So with that, let's get into today's episode with the incredible Chelsea Leyland. So we are here with Chelsea Leyland. She is a DJ and CBD activist. CBD or cannabis? Cannabis. Cannabis. I like as to a say whole. A, a medical cannabis activist. Yeah. Amazing. I'm I'm so excited for this conversation for so many reasons. I kind of always like to start the conversation with how the guest was as a kid. If you remember what you were as a really little kid, what was that like? As a really little kid, well, my mom always describes me as a scared rabbit. So I think I was. Um, I had a bit of a fearful, anxious uh, essence to myself when I was young. And um, I grew up with an older sister who had um, a severe form of epilepsy. And so perhaps some of my um, my little rabbit, my little scared nature came from that, I think, element of my life. But I was always described by my mum as the little helper. And I was very much my mum's uh, help her and um, assisted her with caring for my sister. So I think I took on that role as the helper from a very young age. And that certainly, you know, transcended into my life as an adult with this 
need, which sometimes uh, or can quite quickly for me become imbalanced, uh, this need to to help people. And I think this way that I show love in a way of of trying to fix people perhaps. And, uh, you know, sometimes I find it hard. I don't like the thought of other people suffering and not being able to help. And I think, you know, during my more recent years, I've just kind of learning to accept that we're all on our own individual paths, perhaps, Mm -hmm. and helping people is good and, and having a big heart and being empathetic, but we also can't fix and save people. How do you thought about that before? Like about how you were when you were growing up and what you're doing today? You know, I hadn't thought about it throughout my life um, until the last few years, until I think my work changed and I began to do a lot of shedding. I think I hit 30 and just decided um, or had a calling really to look at myself and to really focus on doing some serious healing, Mm -hmm. um, which I think for me was like a, you know, a, a moment of shedding and just learning about myself and also perhaps accepting my defaults of character and and trying to be the best version of myself and um, also just accepting my situation. And I think, I mean, you've been working on this documentary, Separating the Strains, for the past two years, which explores epilepsy and and the uh, landscape of medical cannabis. It focuses around my story and my health and my sisters. And so, you know, there was, there's been moments of us having to go through childhood footage and and watch, you know, footage of my family and my sister and I. And so a lot of that stuff has been coming up for me. And I think that, you know, to your initial point, it is in those formative years that really shape who we become as Mm -hmm. adults a lot of the time. And I think that is especially the case as well with with challenging situations and 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 kind of childhood trauma um and and actually not being able to process and address it as a child so having to go back and do that as an adult and it's sort of like taking out your, your dirty laundry and you know just cleaning yeah. it out get back to the room and just wiping the mud off yeah. and you know someone once described it to me as 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 it's like finding a diamond you know only when you put your fingers in the mud and and then you find the diamond and you brush off the mud and then you have to wash it another one step further do you actually begin to see it sparkle and i kind of see that that's the what way we're a great we analogy it's nice wow. that right do you think it always happens around that age like did something happen that kind of made you reevaluate everything yeah, I think it was a combination of many things. I mean, ultimately, I think it was a point of probably, you know, having a bit of a emotional breakdown and just feeling like I couldn't really cope anymore. Um, and I was in a relationship that was very challenging and very painful. And I, I was madly in love, but in a, a very sort of unhealthy, codependent situation. And, you know, what's funny is that I think throughout my life, all of the challenges that I faced, I never really understood the route to be during those formative years mm-hmm. and it, that it was family and that it was all rooted in um, not being able to help the person that I love the most, which was my sister. And it's it's funny how when we are given, you know, we can't really change the hand that we're dealt, so to speak. So I think you just you just sort of get on with it because you know, whether it's in my case, having a, you know, a, a sister with serious special needs, or sometimes someone has had um, an alcoholic parent or, you know, a depressed parent, maybe their parents got divorced, one of their parents passed away, you know, I think whatever, for whatever it is, those situations, we just continue on because that's all we can do. And, and 
I think that it's easy to see all the things on the the surface that are wrong with your life mm-hmm. and, and put so much of your pain into that. And I think it takes it takes deeper work to be able to go back and be like, you know what, everything in my life is a challenge. There is friction there because of these 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 real core issues and mm-hmm. and, and and that. And so yeah, it was, it was, that was it really. And I, I went through, um, you know, I, I started practicing a lot of yoga. I had been working with a healer for many years. I'd very much been on a spiritual path, um, for a long time. And I think that's because also, you know, my mother has, she works as a medium and has also for many years worked as an animal healer. So I'd grown up in, in that world, but I think, yeah, I just began to dive in and I gave up drinking and I, I just changed my whole lifestyle and it was just, I would go deep and this was then, two years ago. Yeah, maybe even a little bit longer now. Yeah, it was about three years ago, I would say. And every time I kind of dug a little bit of the mud out, then I was like, oh god, I've got more to dig out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and know. you know, and it just goes on. And I think you just keep. It's, for me, it's about trying to better myself and just trying to be the best version of myself. And ultimately, you know, I've learned that the only person that I can really kind of save is myself Mm -hmm. you know and that's the reality I think is like we can only worry about how we respond we can't change other people around us we can't fix other people we can just focus on kind of our response to that and and if we do really want to help people and be of service in the world I think you have to heal yourself before you can heal other people totally well, that's a lot. And I, I want to get into so many different facets of your life, but I, I do want to understand first how you got to New York. And second, when you were diagnosed and also what the time frame was from when you were diagnosed to when you started DJing or if it was DJing first, then diagnosed. So I moved to New York when I was 19, I believe. Um, so I've lived in New York for 11 years now. Wow. Are you a New Yorker? In your eyes? A hundred percent a New Yorker. I used to say it was seven when I was around the seven year mark. And then as I got to like eight, I was like, no, it's 10. It's 10 years. And that's when you're a New Yorker. And uh, my parents are not going to like to hear that. They want me to move back to Miami. Oh, they do? How (laughs) long have you been here? Seven. Seven. Okay. Yeah. You know, you can make it to 10 and then then you're glued and you can't, uh, you can't leave. Um, So, I mean, you know, pretty much I've lived in New York during you know my adult life and the past couple of years I've been sort of half half split between England and and the US which has Mm -hmm. been such a whirlwind and and really fantastic and eye-opening so many reasons and I was diagnosed with epilepsy at 15 and so there wasn't it was only a few years before I moved to New York and I started DJing around the age of 23, 24, could be 25. That's the thing when you get old, you just, you just forget. <laughs> Things are, it all merges into one, <laughs> but you get the gist. Totally. <laughs> um, so. so when you were diagnosed, what were the symptoms like? Like what was happening that you felt like you had to go get checked to see if you did? Like, obviously you've had your sister and had experienced um, what that was like on a different level than when you experienced, but what were you feeling? And then also with whatever diagnosis that they gave you and like what what you were supposed to do at that time, did that follow suit with what you wanted in your life? Like, did they tell you that you couldn't go to nightclubs? Did they tell you that you couldn't do all these things? And and how did you kind of respond to that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, 
you know, I, I guess kind of my diagnosis was, it was, I mean, it was a crazy journey in that. And I think this is the case for a lot of people, not just, you know, with epilepsy, but many conditions, mm -hmm. many um, um, mental health conditions that are really challenging to diagnose. Uh, when I was about 13 years old, I started to get these myclonic jerks in the morning, um, which are actually a type of seizure. And at the time, I had no idea what was going on. I think if you had witnessed that at that age, it almost looked quite funny because I would be having my breakfast and, you know, I'd have my cup of tea in my hand and my my bowl of cereal and I'd be talking to you normally just like this. And 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 my hands would suddenly jerk open. And that's why they're called Called, you know, my, my clonic jerks and whatever I was holding would drop to the floor. And I would get a few here and there. And then the real challenge was at the same time as that kind of jerk where my hand would open, my brain would also, there was also an interruption um, cognitively. So I would lose track of our conversation if I, if we were in sort of deep mm. conversation right now. And then they would come in clusters. So it wasn't just the one, it would be like, you know, six at once. And every time I always use the analogy of the matrix, mm. the interruptions, it was like whatever was going, you know, whatever kind of train of thought or conversation we would be in, I, I would completely lose that. And so I have to say, what we're we talking about. And there was also, you know, an element of drama to it because my bowl would smash to the ground right. or my mug would. And I, I, you know, I remember when I was at home and I was just going through mugs and, and and bowls and and I knew something was wrong and 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 I think around the same sort of time I noticed when I was in the car and I, I remember quite a few times mentioning this to my mum who I I think was just you know so overwhelmed with my sister and coping with that that she just didn't really want to address it because it, it was so worrying but I would explain to her that when the light was trickling through the window, which I always imagine is really beautiful for most people. And it was like that dappled light. Mm -hmm. When it would hit my eyes, it was it would make me feel funny in my head. And I would say to my mom, like, it, when the light flashes on my eyes coming through the trees like that, my head blacks out, you know. And she would say, oh, darling, don't, you know, don't, don't worry me, don't worry me. And these you know, symptoms began to increase. And, and I remember at the time, um, you know, uh, my boyfriend was becoming quite worried. And I used to stay at his house on the weekend and drive, or his dad used to drive me to school early on the Monday morning. And we, I'd have to wake up really early because they lived kind of far from school. And the earlier I'd wake up, the more I would get these jerks. And it was getting to the point where like, you know, by the time I was heading to school, I'd smash two bowls and four more. Like it was, it was right. ridiculous. Alarming. And we had some, certainly some giggles around it, but it also, there was something wrong and it didn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And I kept going to my general practitioner at school, kept telling me there was nothing wrong and then suggested that actually it might be sort of psychosomatic and, and, and actually kind of, I should perhaps talk to a psychiatrist because it was probably some trauma around my sister's mm -hmm. health. And I just kept saying, I, it feels funny. I, th I think there's something wrong with me. And so I think after the fourth visit, he sent me to a neurologist. I went to the neurologist. You know, I told him the exact same story that I've just told you. It was, you know, maximum 10 minutes of, of kind of, you know, conversing with him. And he just said, um, I'm afraid you've got epilepsy, a specific type called juvenile myoclonic epilepsy because it develops in your, your mm -hmm. juvenile years. And and that was just like a, someone just dropped a big bomb on my lap. And that was just a kind of the start of it, really.
What is the difference in lifestyle between you and your sister? I, I know that her her epilepsy is definitely more intense, but can you kind of walk us through? And also, like a lot of people listening, like when people think about epilepsy, you just think that the person has seizures, right? Like that. What you just explained to me is so different than what the norm thinks. So I'd love to also hear what your sister has versus what you have, and then I also want to start getting into how. Well, first, if you got prescribed medication, how long you were on medication for, and then how you discovered CBD. Loaded question, but a lot. And I also realized I didn't answer I didn't answer your question before about being diagnosed and going down the route that I went yeah, down. Yeah, we can get back but, to that. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I, I obviously being diagnosed with epilepsy, I think after dealing with my sister's health for, throughout my life was, was particularly challenging. And I think there was part of me that didn't want to believe it and so just kept pushing forward. And I as most teenagers or many teenagers would do, um, it was that kind of rebel inside me that was just like, just didn't want to accept it. And I think was doing everything possible to try to take away the pain that I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. And so I think I went down a very destructive path, um, but without losing control entirely. I think I was Managed to not get kicked out of school. <laughs> You're sitting here, <laughs> right? I'm sitting here. Um, but so my sister started having seizures as a baby, which, you know, is is particularly damaging um, in the formation of, of, you know, kind of her cognitive development. And she actually has lesions all over her brain and they're not actually able to identify or even have a specific diagnosis of the type of epilepsy. She has nearly every type of seizure there is. Um, and on a bad day, she could have up to 100 tonic-clonic seizures a day, which are what? the large ones where you fall to the ground. Does she have um, like 24-7 care? She has 24-7 care. She has to live in full-time care as a result. But, you know, I mean, the kind of the spectrum um, of seizures that she has, are, you know, it's, it is it's fascinating. And she has drop seizures, which are the worst because there's no warning because often her breathing will change or her eyes will change pre-seizure or she will even know that she's about to have one. And as a, you know, a family member, I can kind of tell, oh, like I can see her breathing's change. I'll sit her down on somewhere soft so that we can protect her head. But sometimes she's made conversation and she just drops um, to the ground. And those are the really scary ones. Uh, and so, you know, from an early age, she was having really, um, you know, intense seizures and she went away to a special school at around seven, eight, I remember. And she spent a lot of time as she still does in and out of intensive care. So I remember spending a lot of time, um, you know, going into, uh, we I think here you call it urgent care as a child. Um, and so, you know, in comparison to my sister, my epilepsy is, extremely mild. I have not had a tonic-clonic seizure now um, for three years. Um, and when I was at my worst, you know, it was, I was having other types of seizures, but those big ones, you know, that was kind of like one, two a year. Um, and, and they really affected me. And they, every time you have a seizure, you damage your brain. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you imagine having those seizures as a baby, and so my sister's now 36, um, with a mental age of around a 13, 14 year old. I mean, she's fantastic. She's just a ball of life. And obviously, you know, one of the best things that ever happened to me, but it's tough. And, you know, she can go from one day having a fairly normal conversation with you and to the next, not even being able to speak. So, you know, it's just a constant journey and, and sort of battle. Um, but, you know, the funny thing about epilepsy as well, you mentioned outside of seizures. I mean, first of all, it's a very hard condition to kind of 
wrap your head around. Um, I think as someone that suffers from it, but also just as someone that else that is trying to understand it. Because you see me, I look completely mm-hmm. normal. I mean, you'd never think I had anything wrong with me. No. And a lot of a lot of the kind of day-to-day dealing with epilepsy is naturally around the seizures. I mean, yes, you have a seizure, it's, it's terribly difficult. You you sort of live in fear of when your next seizure is going to... Do you feel yeah. that? I, I, Still? I, I feel it less than ever. Um, and I'm really so tremendously grateful for that because there was a period in, of my life where I was so consumed by that thought. And I attribute that to my cannabis use because um, my health is in such a touchwood yeah. um, stable place and the most stable place that it's ever been. But there is just constant fa- fatigue. There is, you know, how you're affected by lack of sleep. So for example, you know, I, I slept really well last night, but just I might have slept um, tonight I might have a bad, a poor night's sleep and sleep six hours. Tomorrow I'll suffer from that just from not having the eight that I need or, or the seven and a half, like that one and a, hour and a half difference makes yeah. a huge difference to my memory, just to my, you know, my, my cognitive function, my anxiety. And so there is just, there are so many things. I'm, you know, I'm photosensitive, so I have to, uh, worry about that. Maybe add a gig that I might be DJing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get into your gigs. And so I first heard of you from the DJ world and I feel like that's kind of how you rose to this. You have a huge platform now and I don't know how many years you were doing it for, but what my first thing when I, when I started to see your activism in the cannabis space was, and I started to just to learn more about your journey and um, the fact that you do have epilepsy, is how do you go from being diagnosed with epilepsy to then deciding to go into a field that is clearly exposing yourself to lights and loud sounds? And I heard you on a podcast say that those two things really do used to trigger you. On some level, do you feel like you were rebelling against that diagnosis and you were like, screw that, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want, even if it's on the other side of the spectrum? I think subconsciously, yes, I do. I think that I was I was always of the mindset that my condition will not define me. Mm-hmm. And then I think that was just an element of like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do and this is what I currently want to do. And I think that um, and it, you know, it was really tough, but because I was fortunate enough to live such a, um, like enriching life from, from it, um, I always describe it as kind of like the, the, the sparkly life, mm-hmm. um, where, like you the know, fashion it girl. Yeah. And like traveling around yeah. and getting to stay in nice hotels and seeing the world and taking people on a journey and being able to like, take them on an emotional journey and make people dance and make people smile. I mean, that's like the best job in the world, right? And I think I became quite unhappy doing it for many reasons. But, you know, the the, the morning flights, the late nights, all of that side of it really did take its toll on, on my health. And that was also at a period where, like, I didn't talk to anyone about my epilepsy and I never wanted people to feel sorry for me or to be the weirdo or... I, all of the silly things that go through your head. Um, mm-hmm. Did you internally, like, did you feel that you were putting yourself at risk? Yeah, I think many times, I think more so from uh, like fatigue than anything else, because that is such a quick trigger for epilepsy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just have to have one night, one bad night's sleep and and you could be having a seizure and just also the fear of having one at a, an airport. On a, a plane. On a plane. And and I think that pressure to be the party girl and to bring the vibe was also challenging because during moments of anxiety, which began to get, 
you know, increasingly worse for me, trying to still be that person, like, no, nah, I'm fine, I'm all good, I'm alive, it's all the party, <laughs> um, was was tough when on the inside I, I felt differently. And I think there was a big part of me that was also just waking up a little bit and feeling that I perhaps wasn't sure I liked the person that I was sort of putting out into the world and I felt like I needed to be giving something back and being of service. And I think, you know, I think back to kind of my early point that is to do with having a sister with special needs. And that is something that if you grow up with, I think is very common. It's it's all about not being able to help the person that you most want to help and therefore feeling that you need to help other people. But getting that into balance is so important. And I think there was part of me that was like, I just need to stop DJing. This is so vacuous and shallow and the fashion world is so this and that and and I need to turn my back on this and go and do something to help other people and actually I think just realizing that I could kind of combine the the two worlds together which is sort of where I'm at today and I think I was so lucky that I discovered cannabis and that I had such an improvement in my health which you know obviously we'll go into but I this path found me and to be able to find something else that I was even more passionate about than DJing but was able to feel as though I was actually doing something good and having some change um, or contributing to some kind of change or shift in, in, in the world, I think was what I was craving. What originally drew you to DJing? Originally drew me to DJing, I mean, I always loved music. I went to a particularly creative school. I... You know, I think like most people, um, loved broadening my knowledge of music and collecting music. And and I think it was at a point in my life where I also liked going out and, you know, I'd grown up going to a lot of gigs in London and having um, living in such a kind of multicultural city where we had so many different influences in terms of music. And, you know, there's a huge Jamaican community and influence in London. And I always loved dancehall reggae. And, you know, I, I, I think that my father was, you know, he was a real music lover. So I grew up in a household that was definitely kind of, there was a real focus on, 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 on music. And, and always, my dad was always trying to teach me about, I guess, what he grew up on. And then I was asked by uh, a friend at the time, Ben Watts, um, who's a fashion photographer. He heard me playing some tunes off a, I won't say iPhone because it wasn't an iPhone, it was an iPod oh, at wow. the time Wow! <laughs> in his house in Montauk. And he, he was like, I want you to DJ my July 4th party, which is kind of ironic that there was like a, a Australian Brit throwing a July 4th party. Mm -hmm. but, um, and I was like, I don't know how to DJ. He's like, oh, you don't need to know how to DJ. Just come bring two iPods. We got a mix so you can just crossfade from one track to the next. And and I was like, oh, I can't do that. And my boyfriend at the time was like, it's fine. It'll be really chilled. And I ended up DJing this barn party which probably was like a few hundred people which then went on to become this like rager yeah I mean it was like 15,000 people you know what? like it was crazy he kept doing this party every putting on this party every year um and you would DJ that whole night I would yeah I would I uh, know not the whole night I would do a set okay um, I was like damn yeah that's that would be a long one um but I the first party the first shark attack party that I DJed went really well and 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 actually at the time my boyfriend said to me 
I really think you should take DJ classes and 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 learn to DJ the correct way. Don't ble- don't please be another one of those girls who's DJing from iTunes. Um, actually, learn and learn, you know, with turntables and and, yeah. and records, and you know, see if you can make something out of it. And and that was the beginning. And I started taking classes with DJ Vibe over in Brooklyn, and I took it really seriously. And 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 I think a lot of it was. You know, at the time, there weren't many female DJs, believe it or not. It was still pretty... No, that's why I ask, because obviously this conversation is going to be way more heavy on the cannabis activism. But I I just think it's so interesting when people do find, like, a career path that is just not the norm. And DJing was definitely not the norm then. then. It's not, like, a super norm now. But to think that you could live your life and monetize and live the lifestyle that you did want at that time, like, were your parents creatives like that? Like, were you surrounded by people like that, that you felt that you can actually actually live your life day to day doing that? Yeah, I think that I definitely grew up, um, you know, within a family where the mindset was very much like you do what you want to do and you make something out of it. And there was no, you know, my parents never pushed me to go to university. I went to acting school and I studied method acting in New York when I first moved here. My father was a restaurateur. Um, who ran the Playboy Club in the 70s in London. No Certainly not a conventional human <laughs> being. The most unconventional man in the world. Um, That's hilarious. So, yeah, I mean, I, I and my mother is is really creative. She had a uh, gardening designing business and then went on to become a medium and focus on animal healing. Um, so there was nothing normal about my childhood. <laughs> so you were like, I can definitely make this work. Yeah, it started to work and I was making good money. And I think that there was there was a moment towards the end where I felt like this is not sustainable uh, for many reasons. And I think, you know, I, I mentioned that kind of challenging moment I went through a few years ago emotionally. And I think for me, it was this very confusing moment where I was making good money. Um, I was traveling around the world. Um I was DJing and I was playing music for people and I was wearing beautiful clothes and um, meeting incredible people and, you know, getting to travel. And I just kept saying to myself, you know, there is nothing better than this. And I just wasn't happy. And, uh, you know. That's the worst. Yeah, because then you hate yourself for not being happy. Right, you're like, for being melancholic. Me, yeah, I'm in this position and I still don't feel fulfilled. Exactly. And I think that, you know, I won't attribute that to DJing because I, I, you know, I, I love DJing and I'm, I'm, I'm not DJing as much as I used to now. I but still do. yeah, I still do. And, and I have such a, you know, appreciation for it when I, when I do. But um, there was just a big hole, I think, within me that needed filling. Um, and I needed to go down a bit of a journey of kind of self-discovery and, and, and self-healing. And it's, it was just interesting that when I started a new project, um, that resonated with me and deep within my cells, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and very much felt purpose-driven, but was, I, I, you know, I had a really profound feeling that this is my path and this is why. I'm here and this is why I was given a career as a DJ even because I felt I had imposter syndrome every day that I was a DJ and I'm sure most DJs feel that way I just don't know I mean I think a lot of people feel that way no totally Um, everyone feels that way and and every conventional non-conventional every single person feels it I feel like a lot of people feel like they're DJs you know what I mean yeah yeah but it was crazy too because I mean, I remember moments where people would ask me what I did and I was just like a little tortoise going into the, my shell, like, 
Why are you asking me that question? <laughs> DJ. Yeah, like I just. I no, you're know. a freaking I, DJ. You're I, a good DJ. Thank you. I just, um, I know it might sound crazy, but it, that's just the very truthful way that I felt. And I think that I'll always be someone that perhaps has an element of that. And, and I think a lot of that's just about self-esteem and confidence. And that's something that, you know, we all have to work on. And it's and it's tough. It's really tough. But um, certainly when I... When I started working on the documentary that I'm working on now, um, as challenging as it's been, I just, I can't just, it's so hard to articulate that feeling, but it was like someone pulled back the veil and I was just, I was like, this is my opportunity for me to work on and, and be seen in the way that reflects who I really am. And I felt like I was putting on a mask as a DJ. That wasn't really me. So I was kind of faking it. And I think faking it becomes really exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I can turn up to a gig and I don't feel that way because that other side of myself is being nourished, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. And it's, so, some people never get to that point. And I think you've got to have gratitude to be like, yeah, I realized like that was putting out a fake version of myself. But that's what I'm saying. Like that's literally the point of this podcast for people that are so lost that don't even know the questions to ask themselves. Like I think that that's going to resonate with so many people. That mask, like I've felt that so many times in what I do. Like I still feel that pretty often almost every week. You know what I mean? Like maybe I haven't fully figured out the exact same thing. I do feel like everyone is on a journey and it that that veil thing that happened to you happens to a lot of people at different points in their life, in their 70s, in their 20s, whenever. But I do think it's important to to have people like you talk about that and, like, be open about the fact that you did, quote, unquote, have it all. And you didn't feel like you had it all, you know? Like, that's the, – I mean, it's so powerful. But I do – oh, go ahead. No, and I, I was just going to say on that, you know, it was a moment where – you know, I mean, we've been working on this project for a long time and I'm, I'm I'm so incredibly lucky that I've got the most fantastic team ever that I'm working on this this project with. But, you know, we certainly aren't paying ourselves a lot of money. We've really just um, paid ourselves the bare minimum. And, and you know, and I'm lucky that I'm, I'm still DJing, but there's been periods where I've just been so focused on this and, and haven't had the same money coming in and haven't been, you know, I guess living such a sparkly life. But I've been fulfilled and therefore I feel rich and um, happy. And it's just, it's just sometimes like, it doesn't matter if on paper it looks good because it's just like you got to listen to how you feel. But I think also on your point, that's very interesting that you made, which is, you know, maybe we all are constantly trying to figure it out. And and, and I think there are people that very much feel like they figured it out. But I think, I just think being honest is everything and I think New Yorkers are especially bad at that. It's just this mm-hmm. whole thing, this like facade of like everything's great. And, you know, you're working on a project here, you complete a project here and people ask you, well, what's next for you? I mean, I know that's kind of a normal question, but it's just this whole thing of like, you know, what's next? Not being able to sort of just take a minute and enjoy sort of where you're at. But I think also being vulnerable, it takes being vulnerable to be able to say like, yeah, I'm working on this right now, but I'm I'm kind of feeling a bit lost. I'm like trying to figure it out because God forbid you would say that, you know, because that is of- <laughs> legitimately what I feel right now. Like I have a company and I feel that all the time. And I, I do feel in like the deepest part of my gut that I'm going in the right direction. Like it's going to lead me somewhere. But if you ask me right now, is my cup filled? The answer is no, which is hence why I have this podcast. Because I'm basically asking people like how they figured it out to help me figure it out. <laughs> That's smart. 
So I want to get into cannabis. How did you first figure it out? How did you first start dabbling in, in it? And how did you transition from being medicated to being just on cannabis? So the journey started with me. I was diagnosed, I told you, when I was um, around 15. Um, initially decided not to go on medication um, because I had seen my sister suffer from some pretty horrific side effects, just, you know, going from being um, dangerously thin to being overweight to bleeding gums to mood swings and aggression and just, you know, I, I, there was no way that I was going to get on medicine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of attitude that I adopted. Um, and then I had my first seizure, uh, which was pretty horrific and, you know, frightening for, for certainly for me, but also for my parents. And it was suggested that I, you know, should begin to take anticonvulsant medicine as a way of actually protecting myself because if you would have a fall walking down the street you crack your head open then you're dealing with you mm-hmm. know problems that are much more severe so I started taking a drug that you know I don't I, I kind of seem to block out a large portion of this moment of my life I remember my parents telling me that I became very aggressive and my personality changed which I took very personally and that medicine I took for a while it didn't work they added in a new drug and then I remember feeling uh, a real shift in myself emotionally I mean my anxiety was through the roof I had really bad insomnia I, I felt suicidal for a large period of my teenage years and my boyfriend at the time noticed you know my personality also shifted and and that was just the way things continued and I think it got to the point where it was hard to attribute what is the medication and what is me. Mm-hmm. Am I just this really insanely anxious person with terrible mood swings and has a really short fuse? I mean, I would like flip a switch and lose my temper in ways that just were really hard to accept that I was that kind of person. Or is it the medication? But I didn't have the opportunity, I guess, to discover that because, oh well, uh, so I thought because I was told that I would have to take medication indefinitely and and that would be the case as well when it came to pregnancy and I it, it that was just a very hard nut to swallow um, and I always dreamed of being able to come off pills and or at least be able to detox and, and not knowing what a detox would fully be, feel like for some reason was something that I found really um, hard to accept and Three and a bit years ago, I was introduced to cannabidiol, CBD, um, by a cannabis advocate in the UK. Um, It was all very casual. I'd like to tell you that it was (laughs) in some other way, but it was like, hey, you have epilepsy. You should try a few drops of this CBD. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. And it is mind-blowing or it was mind-blowing how instantaneous the effects were. And I just remember feeling quite shortly after and certainly like a few hours later, like someone had just plugged me into an energy source. It was just like, I use the analogy often, like Humpty Dumpty, little pieces put back together. It wasn't that I felt high. You know, we know that CBD is non-intoxicating. It was just almost that I felt balanced and normal, which is, you know, also known when your body falls into balance, back Mm -hmm. into balance, comes back into balance. It's known as homeostasis. And that evening I forgot to take my medicine, which I would never ever, my traditional medicine, I would Mm -hmm. never ever forget to do because when you have a condition like epilepsy, you don't forget to take your pills. Do you think that was like some sort of divine intervention? Well, I woke up the next morning and 
I was just initially like, oh shit, I forgot to take my medication last night. Like, how could I be so stupid? Like, how irresponsible? And then I thought, hmm, did I forget to take my medicine because of that CBD? And I thought, oh no, that's ridiculous. That can't be. And at the time, the only thing I knew about epilepsy and cannabis was I'd seen the video of Charlotte's Web, mm -hmm. Little Charlotte Figures, that video that went viral, mm -hmm. was little girl who had intractable epilepsy, was having seizure after seizure, I mean worse than my sister even, and stopped having seizures as a result of, of using cannabis oil. And so I ordered a bottle and, and that was the start of my journey. But, you know, I will add that at the time I had no idea what I was doing. I had no support from the medical community. My neurologist was not on board. My general practitioner was not on board. There was no information. I didn't know that how potent the product was that I was using. I didn't know how it was being grown, whether using pesticides, was it consistent? All of the questions I now know that are so important to ask. But I, you know, ended up finding a standardized pharmaceutical grade product, which I'm now using. I took CBD alongside my anticonvulsants for six months. And every day that I was on them, it was though, I just, I was just healing. Everything started to feel better. And I knew I was onto something just by way of how I was feeling. All the anxiety was going out the window. I was sleeping at first 12 hours a night. That's as insane. A, like I was catching up on all the sleep. I mean, it was, it was so incredible. Um, I was able to finish thoughts. My memory got better. I rarely felt like I was going to have a seizure. And if I did, uh, that was um, quickly relieved by taking some CBD. And so, you know, I guess in short, it completely revolutionized my life. And that for me was the catalyst of, I need to work with this plant and and shout it from the rooftops. Yeah, and shout it from the rooftops. And and people need to know about this because I just wasted a large majority of my life suffering on pills. And it's not to say that everybody can can wean off their pharmaceuticals. Certainly not. I think that cannabis is is a drug and that should be emphasized that it will work for some and not for others. Um, but there are a lot of people that can benefit from, um, you know, the, the medical applications of cannabis. And, and I was lucky enough to be one of them, which is why we started working on separating the strains our documentary yeah i wanted to ask really quick before i i have two questions that i just need to close with but i do want to ask why a film like why did you think that that was going to be the loudest way to get your point across you know i think i learned from a few mistakes that i made but initially i just i just couldn't believe what was happening to me and so you know as one does in today's day and age i took to social media to kind of shout from the rooftops and i didn't know what i was talking about at the time you know i think at the time i was slightly nodding towards a vilification of thc i mean not sort of indirectly but i was all pro cbd and um wasn't using any thc and and you know now i use a more well well balanced ratio i use a one-to-one -one and and i you know i think thc works wonders for some and cbd works wonders for some and sometimes it's in combination and you know the plant has over 115 cannabinoids and there is so much more research to be done but i think just kind of by making mistakes and realizing quite quickly that I didn't know anything. Um, and there are a lot of people that didn't know anything because of prohibition and mm -hmm. cannabis was, has, is so under-researched. that. And I also just felt like, you know, people started writing to me, asking me the same questions. What type of cannabis are you taking? Where are you buying it? Who's your neurologist? Has it really stopped your um, seizures? What dosage are you taking? As if I was this kind of, you know, cannabis guru and I just knew that it wasn't sensible or responsible and that I didn't know anything. And so I think it was, how can I have the largest 
impact possible, but make sure that um, it is rooted in uh, scientific evidence um, and is a you know can be a sort of trusted source for information. And I think making a film does seem like the, the best possible. I cannot wait. When is it slated to come out? Mid two thousand twenty, I'd say. Oh, so, soon. Yeah, we're in post production now. Oh my god, I cannot wait. So before we close out, I always ask all of my guests right now, what would you say your active ingredient is? Your what you want your mark on this world to be. My it's a big active, one. <laughs> yeah, it is a big one. And I've listened to your other podcasts uh-huh. and I've 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 sat there and thought, what is my active ingredient? <laughs> um I mean, oh God, can I like sort of combine a few together? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm I'm very much about living your truth and the power of vulnerability. As soon as I became honest and vulnerable and exposed some of my true self, everything in life started to kind of align and fall into place and so you know the power of vulnerability and as a way to connect with people if we are honest we can touch other people we can help other people um we open ourselves up to a completely different world i think you know i've learned the power of the individual you know there are many activists who've come before me um and uh so i'm by no means claiming this was my doing but i think you know when we started this Cannabis was completely legal in the UK. It's now, there's been a change of legislation. It's medicinally legal. That does not mean patients have access, but I think it just made me realize that, you know, we have, we can all do so much. We just have to find what we're passionate about. Um, and so I don't know, my active ingredients, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the power of vulnerability is huge. I hid my epilepsy for many years, and I think as soon as I just started to, like, turn myself inside out, I felt like I was making some change in the world and had the ability to touch other people. You definitely have. I have so many goosebumps right now. Thank you. What is your (laughs) literal active ingredient? The thing that you have to take, it could be CBD. It could be anything, water, um, a meditation, a gratitude, whatever it is that you actually have to do, consume anything every single day. I mean, it has to be cannabis. (laughs) (laughs) I figured. Yeah, I mean, if I was to, you know, get on a flight or jump in a car right now and forget that for, you know, I'd probably last one night and then I'd have to turn around. I mean, that is my literal. Yeah. It's my literal (laughs) medicine to life. So, um, but my second one, (laughs) um, would be probably chocolate and tea in bed at night. Every day. Love that. Yeah. I love that. Herbal tea and chocolate, dark chocolate in bed. (laughs) Amazing. So where can everyone follow you and where is this movie going to be released? Um, You can follow me on my personal account, which is at Chelsea Leyland. And the account for our documentary is at CBD, the number four, epilepsy. Um, And our documentary is titled Separating the Strains. Um, We uh, unfortunately don't have distribution yet because we're still in post-production, but watch this space, keep an eye out, you know, fingers crossed we get to be on a global platform like Netflix. And um, Netflix, if you're listening, (laughs) I have a friend at Netflix that listens. Okay, yes. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Separating the Strains and um, just trying to get ourselves uh, to that point. So yeah. Amazing. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Thank you guys so much for listening. It would mean the world to us if you could rate and review us. 
And for more inspiration and quotes from the episode, check us out on Instagram at Active Ingredient. See you next week.